1. His eternal wisdom and foreknowledge. 2. The absolute freedom and liberty of his will. 3. The perpetuity and unchangeableness both of himself and his decrees. 4. His omnipotence. 5. His justice. 6. His mercy. Without an explication of these, the doctrine of predestination cannot be so well understood, and we shall therefore briefly consider them by way of preliminary to the main subject. The Divine Wisdom and Foreknowledge of God 1. With respect to the Divine Wisdom and Foreknowledge, I shall lay down the following positions. Position 1. God is and always was so perfectly wise that nothing ever did or does or can elude his knowledge. He knew from all eternity not only what he himself intended to do but also what he would incline and permit others to do. Known unto God are all his works from eternity. Acts 15.18 Position 2 Consequently God knows nothing now nor will know anything hereafter which he did not know and foresee from everlasting, his foreknowledge being co-eternal with himself and extending to everything that is or shall be done. Hebrews 4.13 All things which comprises past, present, and future are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Position 3 This foreknowledge of God is not conjectural and uncertain, for then it would not be foreknowledge, but most sure and infallible, so that whatever he foreknows to be future shall necessarily and undoubtedly come to pass, for his knowledge can no more be frustrated or his wisdom be deceived than he can cease to be God. Nay, could either of these be the case, he actually would cease to be God, all mistake and disappointment being absolutely incompatible with the divine nature. Position 4 The influence which the divine foreknowledge has on the certain fruition of the things foreknown does not render the intervention of second causes needless, nor destroy the nature of the things themselves. My meaning is that the presence of God does not lay any coarse necessity on the wills of beings naturally free. For instance, man even in his fallen state is endued with a natural freedom of will, yet he acts from the first to the last moment of his life in absolute subserviency, though perhaps he does not know it nor design it to the purpose and decrees of God's concerning him, notwithstanding which he is sensible of no compulsion, but acts as freely and voluntarily as if he was subject to no control and absolutely lord of himself. This made Luther after he had shown how all things necessarily and inevitably come to pass in consequence of the sovereign will and infallible foreknowledge of God says we should carefully distinguish between a necessity of infallibility and a necessity of coaction since both good and evil men, though by their own actions they fulfill the decree and appointment of God, are not forcibly constrained to do anything, but act willingly. Position 5. God's foreknowledge 
taken abstractedly is not the sole cause of beings and events, but his will and foreknowledge together. Hence we find, Acts 2.23, that his determinate counsel and foreknowledge act in concert, the latter resulting from and being founded on the former. The will of God. We pass on. 2. To consider the will of God with regard which we assert as follows. Position 1. The deity is possessed not only of infinite knowledge, but likewise of absolute liberty of will, so that whatever he does or permits to be done, he does and permits freely and of his own good pleasure. Consequently, it is his free pleasure to permit sin, since without his permission neither men nor devils can do anything. Now to permit is at least the same as not to hinder, though it be in our power to hinder if we please, and this permission, or non-hindrance, is certainly an act of divine will. Hence, Augustine says, those things which seemingly thwart the divine will are nevertheless agreeable to it, for if God did not permit them, they would not be done. And whatever God permits, he permits freely and willingly. He does nothing, neither suffers anything to be done against his own will. And Luther observes that God permitted Adam to fall into sin because he willed that he should so fall. Position 2. Although the will of God, considered in itself, is simply one and the same, yet in condescension to the present capacities of man, the divine will is very properly distinguished into secret and revealed. Thus it was his revealed will that Pharaoh should let the Israelites go, that Abraham should sacrifice his son, and that Peter should not deny Christ. But as was proved by the event, it was his secret will that Pharaoh should not let Israel go, Exodus 4.21, that Abraham should not sacrifice Isaac, Genesis 22.12, and that Peter should deny his Lord, Matthew 26.34. Position 3. The will of God respecting the salvation and condemnation of men is never contrary to itself. He immutably wills the salvation of the elect and vice versa, nor can he ever vary or deviate from his own will in any instance whatsoever, so as that that should be done which he willeth not, or that not be brought to pass which he willeth. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, and the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33.11 He is in one mind, and who can turn him? In what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Job 23 verses 13 and 14 being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will Ephesians 1.11 thus for instance Hophni and Phineas hearkened not to the voice of their father who reproved them for their wickedness because the Lord would slay them 1 Samuel 2.25 and Sihon king of Heshbon would not receive the peaceable message sent him by Moses because the Lord hardened his spirit 
and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into the hand of Israel. Deuteronomy 2, 26 and 30. Thus also, to add no more, we find that there have been, and ever will be, some whose eyes God blindeth, and whose hearts he hardened. That is, whom God permits to continue blind and hardened on purpose, to prevent their seeing with their eyes, and understanding with their hearts, and to hinder their conversion to God and spiritual healing by him. Isaiah 6, verse 9, John 12, verses 39 and 40. Position 4. Because God's will of precept may, in some instances, appear to thwart his own determination, it does not follow either one that he mocks his creatures or two that they are excusable for neglecting to observe his will of command. 1. He does not hereby mock his creatures, for if men do not believe his word, nor observe his precepts, the fault is not in him, but in themselves. Their unbelief and disobedience are not owing to any ill infused into them by God, but to their videosity of their depraved nature and the perverseness of their own wills. Now if God invited all men to come to him and then shut the door of mercy against any who were desirous of entering, his invitation would be a mockery and unworthy of himself. But we insist on it that he does not invite all men to come to him in a saving way and that every individual person who is, through his gracious influence on his heart, made willing to come to him shall sooner or later be surely saved by him, and that with an everlasting salvation. 2. Man is not excusable for neglecting God's will of command. Pharaoh was faulty, and therefore justly punishable, for not obeying God's revealed will, though God's secret will rendered that obedience impossible. Abraham would have committed sin had he refused to sacrifice Isaac, and in looking to God's secret will, would have acted counter to his revealed one. So Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the reprobate Jews were justly condemned for putting Christ to death inasmuch as it was a most notorious breach of God's revealed will. Thou shalt do no murder. Yet in slaying the Messiah they did no more than God's hand and his counsel, that is, his secret ordaining will, determined before, should be done. Acts 4.27 and 28 and Judas is justly punished for perfidiously and wickedly betraying Christ, though his perfidity and wickedness were, but not with his design, subservient to the accomplishment of the decree and word of God. The brief of the matter is this. Secret things belong to God, and those that are revealed belong to us. Therefore, when we meet with the plain precept, we should simply endeavor to obey it, without tarrying to inquire into God's hidden purpose. Venerable Booker, after taking notice how God hardened Pharaoh's heart and making some observations on the apostles' simile of a potter in his clay, adds that though God has at least the same right over his creatures and is at liberty to make them what he will and direct them to the end that pleaseth himself, according to his sovereign and secret determination. Yet it by no means follows that they do not act freely and spontaneously. 
or that the evil they commit is to be charged on God. Proposition 5. God's hidden will is peremptory and absolute, and therefore cannot be hindered from taking effect. God's will is nothing else than God himself willing. Consequently, it is omnipotent and unfrustrable. Hence we find it termed by Augustine in the schoolmen, because whatever God wills cannot fail of being affected. This made Augustine say, Evil men do many things contrary to God's revealed will, but so great is his wisdom and so inviolable his truth that he directs all things into those channels which he foreknew. And again, no free will of the creature can resist the will of God, for man cannot so will or nil as to obstruct the divine determination or overcome the divine power. Once more, it cannot be questioned, but God does all things and ever did according to his own purpose. The human will cannot resist him so as to make him do more or less than it is his pleasure to do since he does what he pleases even with the wills of men. Position 6 Whatever comes to pass comes to pass by virtue of this absolute omnipotent will of God which is the primary and supreme cause of all things. Thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation 4.11 Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115 verse 3 He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou Daniel 4.35 Whatsoever the Lord pleaseth that did he in heaven and in earth in the seas and all the deep places Psalm 135 verse 6 are not two sparrows sold for a fowling, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? Matthew 10:29. To all which Augustine subscribes when he says, Nothing is done but what the Almighty wills should be done, either efficiently or permissively, as does Luther, whose words are these, This therefore must stand, to wit, the unsearchable will of God, without which nothing exists or acts. And again, God would not be such if he was not almighty, and if anything could be done without him. And elsewhere he quotes these words of Erasmus, supposing there was an earthly prince who could do whatever he would, and none were able to resist him, we might safely say of such and one that he would certainly fulfill his own desire. In like manner the will of God, which is the first cause of all things, should seem to lay a kind of necessity upon our wills. This Luther approves of and subjoins, Thanks be to God for this orthodox passage in Erasmus's discourse. But if this be true, what becomes of his doctrine of free will, which he at other times so strenuously contends for? Position 7 the will of God is so the cause of all things as to be itself without cause, for nothing can be the cause of that which is the cause of everything. So that the divine will is the knee plus ultra of all our inquiries. When we ascend to that, 
we can go no farther. Hence, we find every matter resolved ultimately into the mere sovereign pleasure of God as the spring and occasion for whatsoever is done in heaven and earth. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Matthew 11.25 It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12.32 I will be thou clean. Matthew 8.3 He went up into the mountain and called unto him whom he would. Mark 3.13 Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. James 1.18 Which were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Romans 9, verses 15 and 18 And no wonder that the will of God should be the mainspring that sets all inferior wheels in motion, and should likewise be the rule by which he goes in all his dealings with his creatures, since nothing out of God that is exterior to himself can possibly induce him to will or nil one thing rather than another. Deny this, and you at one stroke deny his immutability and independency, since he can never be independent, who acts pro re nata, as emergency requires, and whose will is suspended on that of others, nor unchangeable whose purposes vary and take all shapes according as the persons or things vary who are the objects of those purposes. The only reason then that can be assigned why the deity does this or omits this is because it is his own free pleasure. Luther, in answer to that question, whence it was that Adam was permitted to fall and corrupt his whole posterity when God could have prevented his falling, etc., says, God is a being whose will acknowledges no cause, neither is it for us to prescribe rules to his sovereign pleasure or call him to account for what he does. He has neither superior nor equal, and his will is the rule of all things. He did not therefore will such and such things because they were in themselves right, and he was bound to will them, but they are therefore equitable and right because he wills them. The will of man indeed may be influenced and moved, but God's will never can. To assert the contrary is to undeify him. Bucer likewise observes, God has no other motive to what he does than ipsus voluntas, his own mere will, which will is so far from being unrighteous that it is justice itself. Position 8. Since, as was lately observed, the determining will of God being omnipotent cannot be obstructed or made void, it follows that he never did, nor does he now, will that every individual of mankind should be saved. If this was his will, not one single soul could ever be lost. For who hath resisted his will? And he would surely afford all men those effectual means of salvation, without which he cannot be had. Now God could afford these means as easily 
to all mankind as to some only, but experience proves that he does not, and the reason is equally plain, namely that he will not, for whatsoever the Lord pleaseth, that does he in heaven and on earth. It is said indeed by the apostle that God would have all men saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, as Augustine consistently with other scriptures explains the passage, God will save some out of the whole race of mankind, that is, persons of all nations, kindreds, and tongues. Nay, he will save all men, that is, as the same Father observes every kind of men, or men of every kind, namely the whole election of grace, be they bond or free, noble or ignoble, rich or poor, male or female. Add to this that it evidently militates against the majesty, omnipotence, and supremacy of God to suppose that he can either will anything in vain or that anything can take effect against his will. Therefore, Bucer observes very rightly at Romans 9, he doth not will the salvation of reprobates, seeing he doth not choose them, neither created them to that end. Consistent to which are those words of Luther, This mightily offends our rational nature, that God should, of his own mere unbiased will, leave some men to themselves, harden them, and condemn them. But he has given abundant demonstration, and does continually that this is really the case, namely, that the sole cause why some are saved and others perish proceeds from his willing the salvation of the former and the perdition of the latter. According to that of Paul, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Position 9. As God doth not will that each individual of mankind should be saved, so neither did he will that Christ should properly and immediately die for each individual of mankind. Whence it follows that, though the blood of Christ from its own intrinsic dignity was sufficient for the redemption of all men, yet, in consequence of his Father's appointment, he shed it intentionally and therefore effectually and immediately for the elect only. This is self-evident. God, as we have before proved, wills not the salvation of every man, but he gave his Son to die for them whose salvation he willed. Therefore his Son did not die for every man. All those for whom Christ died are saved, and the divine justice indispensably requires that to them the benefits of his death should be imparted. But only the elect are saved. They only partake of those benefits. Consequently for them only he died and intercedes. The Apostle in Romans 8 asks, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies, that is, his elect exclusively of others. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died for them, exclusive of others. The plain meaning of the passage is that those whom God justifies and for whom Christ died, justification and redemption being of exactly the same extent, cannot be condemned. These privileges are expressly restrained to the elect. Therefore, God justifies and Christ died for them alone. 
In the same chapter, Paul asks, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that is, for all us elect persons, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, that is, salvation, and all things necessary to it? Now it is certain that these are not given to every individual, and yet if Paul says true, they are given to all those for whom Christ was delivered to death. Consequently, he was not delivered to death for every individual. To the same purpose, Augustine argues in Johann, Tract 45, Column 335. Hence that saying of Ambrose, If you are an unbeliever, Christ did not die for you, meaning that whoever is left under the power of final unbelief is thereby evidenced to be one of those for whom Christ did not die, but that all for whom he suffered shall be in this life sooner or later endued with faith. The Church of Smyrna, in their letter to the Diocese of Pontius, insists everywhere on the doctrine of special redemption. Bucher, in all parts of his work, observes that Christ died restrictively for the elect only, but for them universally. Position 10. From what had been laid down, it follows that Augustine, Luther, Bucher, the Scholastics, Divines, and other learned writers are not to be blamed for asserting that God may in some sense be said to will the being and commission of sin. For this was contrary to his determining will of permission. Either he would not be omnipotent or sin could have no place in the world. But he is omnipotent and sin has a place in the world which he could not have if God willed otherwise. For who hath resisted his will? Romans 9. No one can deny that God permits sin, but neither permits it ignorantly nor unwillingly, therefore knowingly and willingly. Luther steadfastly maintains this in his book, in Booker in Romans 1. However, it should be carefully noticed, 1 that God's permission of sin does not arise from his taking delight in it. On the contrary, sin, as sin, is the abominable thing that his soul hateth, and his efficacious permission of it is for wise and good purposes. Whence the observation of Augustine, God who is no less omnipotent than he is supremely and perfectly holy, would never have permitted evil to enter among his works but in order that he might do good even with the evil, that is, overrule it for good in the end. 2. That God's free and voluntary permission of sin lays no man under any forcible or compulsive necessity of committing it. Consequently, the deity can by no means be termed the author of moral evil, to which he is not, in the proper sense of the word accessory, but only remotely or negatively so, inasmuch as he could, if he pleased, absolutely prevent it. We should, therefore, be careful not to give up the omnipotence of God under a pretense of exalting his holiness. He is infinite in both, and therefore neither should be set aside or obscured. To say that God absolutely nills the being and commission of sin 
while experience convinces us that sin is acted every day, is to represent the deity as a weak, impotent being who would fain have things go otherwise than they do, but cannot accomplish his desire. On the other hand, to say that he willeth sin doth not in the least detract from the holiness and rectitude of his nature, because whatever God wills, as well as whatever he does, cannot be eventually evil. Materially evil it may be, but, as was just said, it must ultimately be directed to some wise and just end. Otherwise, he could not will it. For his will is righteous and good, and the sole rule of right and wrong, as is often observed by Augustine, Luther, and others. Position 11. In consequence of God's immutable will and infallible foreknowledge, whatever things come to pass, come to pass necessarily, though with respect to second causes, in us men many things are contingent, that is, unexpected and seemingly accidental. That this was the doctrine of Luther none can deny, who are in any measure acquainted with his works, particularly with his treatise, De Salvo Arbitrio, or Free Will of Slave. The main drift of which book is to prove that the will of man is by nature enslaved to evil only, and because it is fond of that slavery, is therefore said to be free. Among other matters, he proves there that whatever man does, he does necessarily, though not with any sensible compulsion, and that we can only do what God from eternally willed and foreknew we should, which will of God must be effectual, and his foresight must be certain. Hence we find him saying, It is most necessary and salutary for a Christian to be assured that God foreknows nothing uncertainly, but that he determines and foresees and acts in all things according to his own eternal, immutable, and infallible will, adding, Hereby, as with a thunderbolt, is man's free will thrown down and destroyed. A little after, he shows in what sense he took the word necessity. By it, says he, I do not mean that the will suffers any forcible constraint or coaction, but the infallible accomplishment of those things which the immutable God decreed and foreknew concerning us. He goes on, Neither the divine nor human will does anything by constraint, but whatever man does, be it good or bad, he does with as much appetite and willingness as if his will was really free. But after all, the will of God is certain and unalterable and is the governess of ours. Exactly consonant to all which are those words of Luther's friend and fellow laborer, Melanchthon. All things turn out according to divine predestination, not only the works we do outwardly, but even the thoughts we think inwardly. Adding in the same place, there is no such thing as chance or fortune, nor is there a readier way to gain the fear of God and to put our whole trust in Him than to be thoroughly versed in the doctrine of predestination. I could cite to the same purpose Augustine, Aquinas, and many other learned men, but for brevity's sake forbear. That this is the doctrine of Scripture, every adept in 
those sacred books cannot but acknowledge. See particularly Psalm 135, verse 6, Matthew 10, verse 29, Proverbs 16, 1, Matthew 26, 54, Luke 22, 22, Acts 4, 28, Ephesians 1, 11, Isaiah 46, 10. Position 12. As God knows nothing now which he did not know from all eternity, so he wills nothing now which he did not will from everlasting. This position needs no explanation, no enforcement, it being self-evident that if anything can accede to God, de novo, that is, if he can at any time be wiser than he always was, or will that at one time which he did not will from all eternity, these dreadful consequences must ensue. 1. That the knowledge of God is not perfect, since what is absolutely perfect cannot admit either an addition or detraction. If I add to anything, it is from a supposal that that thing was not complete before. If I detract from it, it is supposed that that detraction renders it less perfect than it was. But the knowledge of God being infinitely perfect cannot consistently with that perfection be either increased or lessened. 2. That the will of God is fluctuating mutable and unsteady, consequently that God himself is soul, his will coinciding with his essence, contrary to the avowed assurances of scripture and the strongest dictates of reason, as we shall presently show when we come to treat of the divine immutability. Position 13. The absolute will of God is the original spring an efficient cause of his people's salvation. I say the original and efficient, for there are other intermediate causes of their salvation, which, however, all result from and are subservient to this primary one, the will of God. Such are his everlasting choice of them to eternal life, the eternal covenant of grace entered into by the Trinity in behalf of the elect. Their incarnation, obedience, death, in intercession of Christ for them, all which are so many links in the great chain of causes, and not one of these can be taken away without marring and subverting the whole gospel plan of salvation by Jesus Christ. We see then that the free, unbiased, sovereign will of God is the root of this tree of life, which bears so many glorious branches and yields such solitary fruits. He therefore loved the elect and ordained them to life because he would, according to that of the apostle, having predestinated us according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.5 Then next, after God's covenant for his people and promises to them, comes in the infinite merit of Christ's righteousness and atonement. For we were chosen to salvation in him as members of his mystic body, and through him, as our surety and substitute, by whose vicarious obedience to the moral law in submission to its curse and penalty, all we, whose names are in the book of life, should never incur the divine hatred or be punished for our sins, but continue to eternity as we were from eternity, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
but still the divine grace and favor and God extends these to whom he will must be considered as what gave birth to the glorious scheme of redemption according to what our Lord himself teaches us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son etc. John 3.16 in that of the apostle in this was manifested the love of God towards us because that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him 1 John 4.9 position 14 since this absolute will of God is both immutable and omnipotent we infer that the salvation of every one of the elect is most infallibly certain and can by no means be prevented. This necessarily follows from what we have already asserted and proved concerning the divine will, which, as it cannot be disappointed or made void, must undoubtedly secure the salvation of all whom God wills should be saved. From the whole of what has been delivered under this second head, I would observe that the genuine tendency of these truths is not to make men indolent and careless, or lull them to sleep on the lap of presumption and carnal security, but one, to fortify the people of Christ against the attacks of unbelief and the insults of their spiritual enemies. And what is so fit to guard them against these as the comfortable persuasion of God's unalterable will to save them and of their unalienable interest in the sure mercies of David. 2. To withdraw them entirely from all dependence whether on themselves or any creature whatsoever. To make them renounce their own righteousness no less than their sins in point of reliance into acquiescence sweetly and safely in the certain perpetuity of his rich favor. 3. To excite them from a trust of his goodwill toward them, to love that God who hath given such great and numberless proofs of his love to men, and in their thoughts, words, and works, to aim as much as possible at his honor and glory. We were to consider the next chapter, page 59, the unchangeableness of God in his decrees. 3. The unchangeableness which is essential to himself in his decrees. Position 1. God is essentially unchangeable in himself. Were he otherwise, he would be confessedly imperfect, since whoever changes must change either for the better or for the worse. Whatever alteration any being undergoes, that being must, ipso facto, either become more excellent than he was or lose some of the excellency which he had. But neither of these can be the case with the deity. He cannot change for the better, for that would necessarily imply that he was not perfectly good before. He cannot change for the worse, for then he could not be perfectly good after that change. Ergo, God is unchangeable, and this is the uniform voice of Scripture. I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3.6 With him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 Thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Psalm 102, verse 27 Position 2 God is likewise absolutely unchangeable with regard 
to his purposes and promises. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, verse 19. The strength of Israel will not lie, nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. 1 Samuel 15:29. He is in one mind, and who can turn him? Job 23:13. I the Lord have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent. Ezekiel 24:14. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Romans 11:29. He abideth faithful and cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 By the purpose or decree of God we mean his determinate counsel whereby he did from all eternity preordain whatsoever he should do and would permit to be done in time. In particular it signifies his everlasting appointment of some men to life and of others to death which appointment flows eternally from his own free and sovereign will. The children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.11 The apostle then, in the very next words, anticipates the objection, which he foresaw men of corrupt minds would make to this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Which he answers with, God forbid. And resolves the whole of God's procedure with his creatures into his own sovereign and independent will. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.